Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello everyone, Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, episode 200. And 16, Friday, November the 19th, 2021. And another week, Mark. I'll tell you what, I want to jump in early and, and get a little plug for our Vet Guru's shop because you know how the, the world's gone crazy and delivery of products is very much delayed. So if you want that special, very special Vet Guru's merchandise item, you better order it this week, I think, Mark, in order to get it for Christmas. Um, so go to etsy.com and search for Vet Gurus, and you'll find some really good stuff there. And I must admit, Mark, I got a couple of extra little deliveries, uh, and I think you ordered one of them, a nice little pair of socks, Mark. Loving my socks. Week. Loving my uh, socks. And, oh, you've got them? Yeah. Yep. yeah. They're actually quite... Uh, Quite sensual, <laughs> quite sensual on my on my feet, on my toes. They're very soft, aren't they? Yes, and even better for for somebody of my age, Mark. They do have a left and a right on there. Uh, um, and the funny thing is, the first time I put them on, I I walked proudly over to my wife Annie and said, "Look, look, what do you think of the new socks with the Vet Guru logo on it?" And and then I said to her, "Look, you know, they've even got a left and right." Um, 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 letters on them, and then I looked down and I had them on the wrong oh, feet. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So vetgurus.com, go there, um, and you'll see the link to etsy.com or just go straight to etsy, etsy.com and search for Vet Gurus store, and that's where it is. Uh, well, so the, fact how- that, the fact that you uh, need reminding, Brendan, about which is your left and right foot um, is not the only reminder of your great vintage um that i've gotten this week i am um, i got a, a a reminder to attend the virtual um the virtual conference yeah the virtual upav conference um and in that reminder um that there was a little note about um you know, let me just read it um, <laughs> oh, specifically no. um, because it's, it's, all, it's always been one of the favourite parts of uh, the UPAV conference for me. Um, but obviously, uh, um, you know, there's been a certain part of it that has um, that's gone back to um, uh, well tradition. It, yeah, that's exactly right. And so, um, hang on, I'm just I had it brought up. Sked, do you know? I've had no end of trouble with Sked. Do you know Sked? Um, Yes, but no, I don't use it. (laughs) Yes, well, um, I thought I could. uh, That's the only way I could get on the the um, the. uh, um, I will. Copy and paste it to you, Mark. I've got it right now. Let me oh, read got it. it. Yep. Uh, so the, the unusual quiz is a highlight of our yearly calendar and very competitively contested. The absence of a face-to-face dinner upon which to play is no impediment, and we are moving the format to a Zoom-based one. Tristan Rich is building on the platform laid by our forefathers, Robert Johnson and Brendan Carmel, and is currently acquiring a raft of questions that will put to everyone to the test. Forefathers! I think I'm dead. Box. I think I'm dead, don't they, Mark? <laughs> yes. Um, I'm looking for a bronze statue of me somewhere, <laughs> being a forefather, and then um, somebody will behead me at some stage, yes, in a fit of rage. <laughs> Or, or tie a noose around it and drag it through the through the um, central business district of Melbourne. Yes, uh, yes, it was an interesting little um, publicity email, Mark. There, yes, um, I've certainly it's one. I've been called a lot of things in my life, Mark, but certainly not a forefather. But, um, so, I, I, if it's I, a I, term I, of I, endearment, or I'm just trying to pay a pr- appropriate respect to the the uh, the. The, all the contributions you've made to UPAV. Well, 
I'm looking forward to the quiz, Mark, having said that. Yes, and I'll sit back and try and get as many questions as I can incorrect. We will see. We will see, yes. So that's the Unusual Pet and Avian Veterinarians group within the Australian Veterinary Association. And, yeah, our online conference starts this coming weekend. So anything else you need to talk to us about, Mark, before we get stuck into some news? The only thing I was going to say was that I've been madly June preparing um, I've been. Um, I've read the book again a couple of times. I looked at uh, David Lynch's 1984 um, version, 1984. I can't remember when he did that. Um, in anticipation of the big event um, coming to the big screen, um, I'm not going to look at it like you did um, until it's on the big screen. Um, so. Um, ah, so, you have been studying, haven't you? Uh, yes. Uh, so um, in our reviews in the coming weeks, I'll be happy to um, second guess your estimation of um, of the most recent Dune. Yes. Um, and I've been doing the same, Mark. I, I actually ordered a, a uh, what would you call it, maybe a collector's edition of Dune, um, a hardback edition. Um, so, And I've been enjoying reading that again, Mark, and I haven't finished it. I haven't been doing my speed reading course like you have and, and finished it, um, but I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And I must admit I did sit down for an hour last night and I read a few a few pages last night. Yes, it's... Yeah, it's a very very good book, isn't it? What did you think of the book, having reread it again? Um, it, I, I, it's always um, uh, it's always the second and third readings are always um, tests, aren't they? Because the the magic of the first reading, the reveal, as it were, is then um, is then uh, exposed to comparison and more analysis and. Um, uh, but I still thought the the whole thing stood up very, very well um, as a, a piece of scientific uh, science fiction. Um, and know, some interesting sort of religious undertones, yeah, isn't exactly. it? With, with, um, with, well, I don't want to give away <laughs> the plot, but if people haven't read it or, or haven't seen the previous versions of the film. Yes. Good. So I look forward to your review of that, Mark. But in the meantime, you have a very interesting news article for us. And and this news article is sort of um, serendipitous. It's uh, um, it's American focused, um, which we don't, you know, we usually don't have that sort of a focus in our stuff. But um, it's a discussion about the Scots Oriole, a beautiful um, lemon and black plumage bird, not awfully um, unlike our. Um, uh, Regent Bowbird, but um, striking in its own way, um, and and as as seems to be happening quite a lot lately, the bird's name holds um, layers, holds um, uh, uh, additional information that's not immediately obvious to those of us who are not familiar with um, uh, American military history. Uh, the bird's named for Winfield Scott, a U.S. military commander, and um, and he's famous for having driven the ch- uh, Cherokee um, people of the Cherokee Nation um, from their ancestral lands in the 1800s, and um, and the forced marches uh, as they were removed from their lands, um, which killed over 4,000 Cherokee, displacing as many as 100,000 people in the end, is now known as the um, Trail of Tears. Um, and so much of the Trail of Tears has um, has already been, you know, um, erased from history. I don't know. This is a very interesting thing, I think, Brendan, that, that maybe just as... Um, uh, we in the UPAV community pay respect to what you and Robert have done. Um, I think that um, taking away that respect when it's discovered some aspect of a person's life is inconsistent with the way we would like life to be lived now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it's, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the words that are used? Um, erasure is one and cancelling is the other popular one at the moment. Um, but the bird is in... Um, in that part of the world now, particularly um, uh, Stephen Hampton is the one uh, who's promoting this. Um, 
is suggesting that maybe the the uh, the bird not be called Scott's Oriole anymore and be given it some uh, previously existing Indigenous name. And this struck me as an interesting story because here in Australia we've um, – in northern New South Wales, there's the Ben Boyd National Park. Um, ben Boyd um, uh, um, is a famous Australian uh, um, exp- uh, explorer. See, uh, I come so well prepared, Brendan, just absolutely prepared to the hilt for this stuff. Um, and, um, and there's a movement afoot at the moment because uh, Ben Boyd was associated with a... Pro- uh, 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 a, uh, I don't know, process, uh, an activity called blackbirding where um, uh, um, a a form of slavery where people were um, imported and uh, worked for next to nothing on the properties he owned. Um, His association with that process has brought his, well, not his name into disrepute. Um, Yes. So he was, I mean, I just looked him up there, so I... Scottish entrepreneur, there you go, who became a major ship owner, banker, grazier, politician, and slaver. Uh, <laughs> exploiting South Sea Islander labour in the British colony of New South Wales. So what do you think, Mark? Should you jump in? What's your summary of this? Do you think we should jump in and change change the names of all of these um, offensive or, or, or um, racist um Animals as soon as we can. Um, yes, and I do. Where do, where do you, I suppose... Where do you draw the line? Exactly. That's what I think they touch on in this article there, Mark. Um, at, at what point do we just... Because, what I mean, a lot of it's going to be fairly obvious with some of these names that need to be change, changed, but some of them can just be opinions of, of maybe a few people. And um, when do we decide we need to change that? Name, Mark. Well, I think the thing I like, at least about um, many Australian place names, is that there's bloody excellent pre-existing names. It's not like we have to change them to something. We can just give them the name they've had for forty thousand years before we got here, um, and that name might carry, you know, some extra weight because of the time it's been used. So I, I don't see it as a huge problem. And Brendan, to be fair, two things I'd say. The first thing is that most of the um, uh, anglicised names that, um, you know, I don't know how many sandy beaches and rocky creeks we've driven past, they're unimaginative names, first of all. Um, So reverting to previous names is a good thing. And names change all the time. Names will be changing anyway. So us changing to... Um, a name that from a name that we've used for a, a, uh, a few hundred years because it's upsetting to people. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. So I reckon ASAP. Yes, that reminds me of my very first words. I said, Mark. <laughs> what were the very a baby, first words? My you mother, said? my mother reminded me. Mita, Mita. <laughs> And Mitter Mitter is a is a town in Victoria where the Mitter Mitter Creek or the Mitter Mitter Valley or River, Mitter River, isn't it, um, is there. And we used to do lots of camping with the family when I was a youngster and apparently my first word was one of my first words. It may not have even, it may have been before mum or dad, um, was Mitter Mitter and apparently for that rest of that trip, all I would say was Mitter 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 Mitter. <laughs> So sometimes we like names so much here in Australia, we know, we, we say it twice, don't we? Um, like Mitta Mitta, um, Victoria River. Yes, so there you go, Mitta Mitta. Yes, I, I think <sighs> change them. Yes, is my just, answer to that. Just change um, them. Just change them. Well, my, my story is a compl- <laughs> completely different level. Um, it's about how the leopard got its spots, Mark, and, and the reason why I have this little one, it's just, I've got a little bit of a link to a um, mathematician, Alan Turing, who was very famous for cracking the Nazi Enigma code, Mark. And the thoughts are that research showed that Alan Turing was on the right path about the way which spots and stripes develop in the womb. And he believed that spots and stripes of cats, cats were created by spreading process in the skin cells. 
and looking back at this theory that he had, um, he could have been on the right track, Mark, as far as what was happening with how leopards develop their spots as well. So um, the only thing is he didn't know what the chemicals were or how the process worked, but his theory was that the whole whole process was occurring there in the in the, those skin cells. And what we do know that, that, that possible the genes that are involved there that turn into the stripes, etc., with them. So. Um, reason why I found this interesting, when I first read it, I thought, you know, did he have some mathematical formula that yep. was predicting why you would get spots or stripes? And not really, no, it was, it was just thinking about um, the process that was happening in the, in the skins of them. Um, because one, one of the subjects I studied uh, in um, when I was doing a bit of a science degree, Mark, was um, history and philosophy of science. Was uh, I did that for a year, and um, I think we studied the Turing machine um, and some of his mathematical models, and they were quite interesting, very sort of abstract ideas, um, and from these very smart people, Mark and. Um, Took me a long time to get my head around how how these people thought up these these theories, and you know he he simulated this. You know he's famous for this thing called the Turing machine, which is a sort of a arbitrary machine um, that that um, proves the existence of sort of limitations on computation, um, and it relates to current you know to to computers as we use them today. Um, and I was hoping there might be some link with that, but no, there's nothing. So there you go, but um, yeah. So that's my story. It's a bit of a bit of a non-story, isn't it? Um, no, no. Because the, the, the well, the clickbait is sort of how the leopard got its his spots. Discovery shows how Turing cracked the code. Well, sort of. Is my answer to that? Yeah, <laughs> sort of. Yes. Well, let's jump into our. Main news story, Mark. Our main, our main testing, um, and we want to talk about geriatric guinea pig care. We have sort of touched on this a few times with general care of guinea pigs, but we haven't done a specific one on the common syndromes or diseases or processes we see in these older guinea pigs in our practices and what we do to provide them quality of life um so we're going to run through some of those mark and i suppose the first question i always get asked is you know how old do they live mark what's the average lifespan how old do you say what do you say to clients as far as you know i've got a young guinea pig um how old will it live till it's always well I'll answer directly. Um, most of the guinea pigs we get to see live between four and six years, and the occasional one gets to seven or eight. Um, but um, but by the time they're you know two or three years old, they're in their senior years. And what's the oldest one you've seen? Uh, I think uh, eight, seven, between seven and eight. I'm gonna. Yeah, go I with. think I think I've seen one that's got to ten, Mark. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I think with a lot of our exotic pets or our pets generally, we're certainly without with our medicine and our better nutrition and husbandry, we're seeing them live a lot longer. Um, and guess what? A lot of the common diseases or pro- problems we see in these animals are similar to what we see in the other mammals, aren't they, Mark? Or even the birds and the reptiles as well. And the first one I'd like to touch on because I think there's a couple of sort of key indicators that we see with this is osteoarthritis mark I see a lot of it in the older guinea pigs and you know the classic sites that I especially um, tend to see it in my practice are stifles mark in those knees um, we see really swollen knees um, fairly commonly in those older piggies and they have this fairly characteristic stance where they look like they're stiff and sore and then we get secondary problems related to that like um, urine scald and and faecal issues um, with them and then um, sometimes even even worse problems related to that like fly strike etc do you see much osteoarthritis in the older guinea pigs Uh, it's it's almost universal um they the the the, and the key thing about it that I find troubling is that unless the the, cha- the changes are relatively subtle, 
Um, as you said, it might be a slight um, stiffening of the gait, and because they're you know people are not paying particular attention, these things uh, go unchecked um, until they're 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 causing those secondary problems like scalding or whatever. And the other thing that I find, um, you know, the when we talk to our doctors, when we talk to you know, uh, when we look at uh, more common um, companion animals the smaller additions of those animals tend to have fewer problems with osteoarthritis. It's the large dogs that get it early and more severely. Um, and so the little light, weight, uh, exotic, unusual companion pets, it's certainly not uppermost in the owner's mind that osteoarthritis might be an issue with them, I think, for this reason. Um, so it does sort of sneak past them, Brendan. Yes, absolutely. The good news is a lot of these I find respond very well and we provide them with some great pain relief and even increased mobility with, with some of the medications that we put them on. And the first one I like to talk about with that um, with this particular condition is our is our pentazam polysulfate equivalent. Um, and we, I often go with a course of four injections once a week, similar to what we would be doing in a dog, Mark, and then depending on that individual, um, they have booster injections and um, some of these have had remarkable responses um, to, to just that without any other, any other medications. And um, although a fair number of them need fairly frequent boosters where I may be giving a booster shot every month or so um have you had have you had success with that particular product Matt? it is it's um it really surprises me because you were describing the changes in the shape of the joints um and, and particularly those stifles that are palpable yes um and often my experience with the joint fluid modifying agents like pentasan polysulfate is that they're most effective when you know the before the joints change shape when changes to joint fluid are obviously the primary agent of pain and discomfort. Um, but it is, as just as you described, we've had some um, outstanding results where we use uh, the pentasan polysulfate uh, type drugs in, um, in those relatively severe cases. Um, we'll use that to start with. And in some of those cases, we're so surprised that we don't have to go on to ancillary treatments. Yes. Otherwise, we may end up putting them on something else. And the good news there is similar to the Pentazan products that they're commonly available in most clinics or, or in most clinics, and that's our non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And uh, with these little piggies it's um typically a meloxicam that i'd be reaching for them and and again um if that seems to do the trick with them um they may be on meloxicam as well as a pentazan um regularly um most of the ones that i have on long-term meloxicam it's once a day i find um seems to work quite well with the um caution that you know ideally we be, should be doing bloods on these because one of the other conditions as we'll see in a sec maybe we take that as the next one is renal compromise with them so we need to be a little bit cautious about what medications we are using in them but our non-steroidals and and then our other sort of pain relief um, uh, agents there mark um, that I've, I've sort of been trialing with them and i'm sure you've been doing the same and that includes things like um, our gabapentins um, and perhaps even our the controversial one, the old tramadol with the mark. So do you want to have a little chat about those sort of non-steroidals and our, and our other sort of analgesic type agents for these osteoarthritic guinea pigs? Well, you've hinted out already that, um, that there is some um, controversy about some of those drugs and how effective they are. But there's no doubt in my mind that um, when we're at the stage of, of exhausting the effectiveness of our um, our Meloxicam and, and Pentasan, um, then we are looking for those extra things that will provide relief. And even if they're maybe not as effective as we initially thought they may have been, I still feel we're getting results with particularly gabapentin and um, and uh, and certainly there are cases where tramadol makes a, 
uh, significant difference. And I don't think you can overestimate the the environmental factors, Brendan. Just paying attention to um, uh, the the nature of the enclosure, so that um, that they're not walking on uh, hard to walk on surfaces. That the um, that the uh, environment they're in is soft that they get to any climbing they have to do is well supported and arranged at angles that are going to put less pressure on them all those um, enclosure supportive things maybe not necessarily medications but they make a big difference as well absolutely and cleaning and and um, you know perhaps those ones that do have a little bit of the problem with that perineal region and urine and or fecal scald you know making sure the clients are well versed in keeping that area clean um, and clipped with the long head if it's a long head guinea pig and, and um, potentially bathed in that area as well so we and, find that um, like the, the those drugs we often use in as you highlighted um, we will try and get um, assessment of renal function and if we do think that's it's surprising how often that turns up to be somewhat compromised um, if that's the case then that's when we might look at uh, limiting the amount of non-steroidals and trying to work with gabapentin and tramadol. Yeah and it's it I think with all of these geriatric problems where it, it, it's probably less common to rare that we don't have multiple issues going on with that individual so it's a balance isn't it and, and the bottom line is providing quality of life for that animal and, and realizing that sometimes yes we may be giving a medication that perhaps is not ideal to give and that it might increase the chance of, of um, um, pressure on another organ but um, we're providing a happy piggy and I think we need to step back and make sure that that's sort of our number one priority and we're Sure, we're balancing the risks and the benefits of them, but but sometimes we do end up putting them on medications that are not ideal, and yet the animal may survive for much longer than they would would have thought of, and it doesn't develop secondary problems related to the potential contraindications of that product. Brendan, what about um, uh, vitamin C requirements in these um, older guinea pigs? Do you find that plays a role in their quality of life? I must, yeah, great point. I mean, I must admit it's it, it's probably something that we need to have in the back of our minds with, with all of these older patients that they may have, um, well, an increased requirement or, or potentially for some supplementation of it. But uh, but um, to be honest, it, it it's something that I don't have sat there at the front or the back of my mind a lot of the time with them and I should be spending um, more attention to making sure that we're, we're supplying the adequate um, levels of them because it is something that has been well reported and and for those who don't deal with guinea pigs we do worry that guinea pigs can't that that they need to have that that um, vitamin c supplied um, in their diet um, and and it's involved in so many things isn't it mark it's involved with skin it's involved with um, um, joints it's involved with well, what else is involved with a complex? No, no, it's that, that skin. Particularly, we find that um, those. It's a uh, the circumstance where we get an osteoarthritis patient who then alters their gait and develops uh, early um, pressure points on their feet, and um, and and just uh, they. They might have the 30 micrograms per kilogram, 30 micrograms per guinea pig sort of standard dose, but their requirements jump significantly and, and all those organ systems will benefit from, um, you know, the tripling or quadrupling of their uh, vitamin C intake, I reckon. And I think what, what the most common side effect of overdosing with vitamin C is is probably a little bit of... Um, sloppy drop-ins isn't it? It, it it's it's pretty unusual to cause any issues with with um filling them full of vitamin c um so because it's a little bit rubbery what are your recommendations for the you know the the, the general requirements of of guinea pigs and i know some clinics with any guinea pig that's hospitalized um they supplement it with vitamin c as a as a routine there mark do you yeah pretty much we um the, the for any stressful circumstance we think that they become much less efficient and even if they're 
they have dietary adequate dietary intake uh, for normal sort of maintenance circumstances. As soon as they've got a stressful event, they're going to uh, increase significantly, and we at least double the you know the what we expect them from 30, 30 micrograms per guinea pig. Thirty is it micrograms or milligrams? Milligrams, I think yeah, it might yeah. be, but yeah, thirty milligrams per guinea pig to um, to uh, sixty milligrams per guinea pig and if they're in a really difficult circumstance we might even go further ah yes and jumping back to one of the other conditions that the renal compromise mark um so the clinical signs of kidney failure or renal compromise in a guinea pig guess what it's fairly similar to other species isn't it it's it's the classic would be that that slow wasting away of the guinea pig um the 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 lethargic guinea pig the guinea pig looks they look miserable don't they um, they the really ones. do look miserable and and the wasting away this is one of the things where um, with geriatric guinea pigs and particularly the long haired ones it's good to have your clients weigh their guinea pig for multiple reasons um, but the early stages of that weight loss might well be concealed and uh, by the the luscious coat um, but then as the coat you know doesn't doesn't look quite as lush and they lose more weight they can really quickly become profound how much weight they've lost um, quite obvious to the owners and so I think um, encouraging the owners to weigh the guinea pigs regularly uh, first of all gives you clues about renal disease but also helps you manage those other things as well Brendan. Yep and that's a great point with any unusual pet owner Mark um, you know you've got an owner who's fairly observant and um, who's likely to have good husbandry when when you see them for that first consultation and they bring in the little chart of of all the weights of of, the, of their little pet that they've been measuring or taking every every few days or every week or so um, and you know I think it's a good 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 indicator it should be done with all all, all pets, not just um, not just the guinea pigs. Um, so, what about um, these renal cases, Mark? What's your sort of recommendations for trying to give them quality of life? Are there any specific treatments that you consider? Well, we do try and figure out uh, most of the renal cases we get to see a, a chronic renal failure, but there are other um, other you know. Um, intoxications, other uh, renal effects, and we do try and do a little bit of a workup to figure out um, which one they are. Um, but but the vast majority of them end up being chronic renal failure. And, um, and largely, we're trying to do things to increase their water turnover to take the stress off the kidneys um, uh, dealing with it. I often find dietary manipulation to be very frustrating and and maybe even counterproductive in that trying to change yes. the protein content of the diet so that it puts less pressure on the kidney ultimately ends up making the, the poor guinea pig eat far less and get into trouble more quickly. Um, so working to increase the water turnover is probably one of the main things that we do. But even that's not an easy thing to do, Brendan. Yes, I agree. Um, and especially regarding that comment about the, you know, the, the content of the of the food and, and even thinking about you know calcium contents etc with them because we we know so little same with rabbits about how it all works the calcium uh, metabolism on them and and thinking about whether or not we should be altering that with ones with with um, renal failure I, I much prefer exactly as you to keep the animal eating we're worried about weight loss anyway and um, um, rather than trying to fiddle with the diet with them, yes. Um, and encouraging them to drink more, yeah. I, I think the tricks that traditionally we talk about are um, going with wetting the wetting the vegetables, leaving them wet, encouraging them to, to making sure we've got free access to water at all times, obviously, and having several water um, stations. Um, these are, are good candidates, in my opinion, these, these animals that are sort of slowly wasting away that, have this renal compromise to also supplemental feed them with something like the Oxbow Critical Care. And some of them love taking that as a slurry or like a porridge, Mark, um, and you can make it up even even thinner than that um, and that's giving them a little bit of um, um, water intake as well, fluid intake as well with them. Um, unfortunately, the one thing that we don't, I don't do in, in guinea pigs, which seems to work reasonably well in 
rabbits if you pick your patient is um, regular subcutaneous fluids um, in the rabbits with renal compromise seem to work quite well like it does in you know some of those chronic renal failure cats but I don't do it in guinea pigs because they've got such tight sort of skin and not not much loose subcutaneous space there and it I think it hurts like hell giving it to them so I, I prefer not to do it what's your thoughts on that? Well, it might, might not hurt like hell, but they certainly give a very good impression <laughs> of it hurting like hell. Yes. Yes. Um, so what about your thoughts on, regarding, before we jump on a couple of others before we finish, Mark, um, um, your thoughts on other sort of products like our ACE inhibitors, for instance, in, in guinea pigs. Um, what's your thoughts on that? I have had a few cases where we've had those um, medications applied to the, the, you know, given to the guinea pig as they develop renal problems. And my initial small sample size, and I, don't, I wouldn't want to um, be putting a paper together on it just yet, but um, my impression is that it does make a difference, Brendan. Um, and so I, I would be encouraged, in my cases at least, to um, uh, to get the blood work done and, and start them on those medications, um, that particularly the ACE inhibitors um, yeah. in support of the kidneys. And that's something that hopefully will get some information, some some hard evidence and some papers out there at some stage. Some, somebody, not one of us, <laughs> will get out there and, and do some trials with it. And, and same story with this. There is some thoughts that they're, they're looking into, the some of the laboratories are looking at um, um, indicators of renal function like SDMA and trying to work out um, what the normal reference values are for, for guinea pigs with SDMA and, and rabbits as well um, and then trying to determine whether it is a, a more sensitive in, indicator of renal compromise than our traditional you know, values like looking at our USG etc and our urea and creatinine. So Brendan tell me about um uh, one of the things I don't see much of in my um, senior guinea pigs, but I suspect you might, is um, cardiac disease. Do you see a lot of guinea pigs with heart? Well, my, my flippant answer to that is, yeah, I see a lot, but I don't diagnose a lot. Um, and if you look through the through the research and the retrospective studies of on guinea pig necropsies is that... that there's a remarkable percentage of, of guinea pigs that do have some cardiac changes um, that may be silent um, or are silent. They're not being picked up there in the background um, by the veterinarian because we're, we're not good at looking for it or we don't look for it. And if you're not looking, you're not going to find, obviously. Um, so, yeah, it's it's certainly something that I'm that I do see more of these days because I'm looking for it. Um, I don't think it's that I'm any more skilled at looking for it. Um, and I think we have a way to go with with both detecting cardiac problems in guinea pigs and also and certainly managing it as well because I think that's another, you know, anecdotal use of, of some of the products like our Pimabend and et cetera, which is what I've played around with and, and plus or minus the ACE inhibitors again with these um um, cardiac compromised cases and um, you know I think we're just extrapolating from other species and thinking that hey this medication hopefully will work with this suspect cardiac condition we have in this animal but it's a challenge Mark is my answer to that um, because it's hard enough to count the heart rate of some of these um, guinea pigs let alone determine it has a murmur for instance. So what the, the signs that you're seeing with the 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 guinea pigs that you do see, are they? Well, yeah, I mean, the really obvious ones that, you know, my analogy would be similar to our, our snakes, Mark. They're almost in end stage cardiac problems. Yes. Like it's a snake that has the enlarged heart because the client sees a lump in the snake and says, My <laughs> snake has a lump and it's cardiomegaly. And we're seeing it at the end stage and it would have been nice to detect it earlier on. Um, so, similar process with the ones that we see with the guinea pigs that we can pick and that it, it, it has obvious you know cardiac failure failure signs so you know it's struggling to breathe you you hear obvious cardiac abnormalities or or, or um um you know signs consistent with with um pulmonary edema sort of going on in there and you work them up based on that 
but the other ones, yeah, it's faster to, you know, I mean, you know, sometime in the future when, when we're long gone, Mark, um, perhaps four, they are. Four grandfathers. Yes, that's right. They, um, they, they will have, perhaps they'll have some of these, you know, key blood parameter indicators um, for, for cardiac, um, you know, cardiac muscle disease um, problems in, in guinea pigs, Mark. And so, it, it, I could see that it's a part of a general blood profile in a guinea pig that one of the parameters they're testing for is a is a um, factor or a gene or whatever that um, indicates that yeah we've got some sort of cardiac compromise going on with it, and yeah things like the the other you know analogous to the SDMA with with dogs and cats with renal failure they'll they'll find you know find something that we can. A test on, um, so same story with with trying to control these. Yeah, um, I, I get some pretty dramatic responses with these ones where, where they're drowning um, on on our diur- diuretics. Um, so you know they're often a mainstay with some of these cardiac ones, and then yeah, trial in these um, other cardiac medications, um, hoping that they work in similar ways to other species. What about, um, I mean, we see maybe um, even before they get to be geriatric animals, um, we see uh, a lot of the boars develop problems with their, their hindquarters, but certainly that's something that uh, increases yes. precipitously as they get to be, um, to be senior animals. How, how, how often do you see boar butt? A lot, yes, boar butt, the famous boar butt, yes. So, so that's the dilated, dilatated um, backside, isn't it? The the um, rectal area, the the um, perineal sort of area, and, and we get this old geriatric entire male, invariably guinea pig that the owner ends up having to clean out its bum um, of feces so we end up with this dilated region there um, where the feces just sit there don't they mark and it's it's amazing how wide that sort of distal gut ends up being isn't it it it's um it truly is amazing to look at the way the shape changes in in the anatomy of the perineum in guinea pigs those male guinea pigs and the accumulation of a ridiculous amount of um, droppings and um and it, it is equally and it's so amazing. smelly isn't it it's that um so pungent uh, in that area yes but it, it so, also amazes me how many of the owners uh, are, um, are particularly keen to to do the necessary work to uh, gently manipulate the the excess out and give it a gentle rinse and um, help to maintain the guinea pig. So, what do we do to try and help prevent that, Mark? What's the thoughts? To prevent it, decess yes. them when they're about six months yes. old. Yes, yes, because it's thought that it's sort of under hormonal control, isn't it? That um, if they're desexed at a, a youngish age, then there is a decreased chance of that um, process happening when it gets older. Um, so if we have a, a mature <laughs> guinea pig that has not been desexed and he has a boar butt, um, then unfortunately we're not going to be able to reverse that process, are we? So the owner's left with cleaning out the bum of that guinea pig yes um are there any other well any other general sort of com or common issues that you see in these older guinea pigs that we'll touch on before we close Matt? well i was the um i was just going to ask you about i mean what happens when some of these problems become overwhelming and interfere with quality of life is that we have to consider um Humane euthanasia. What what um, sort of process do you employ to effectively? Uh, well, you know what it is, Mark. Um, well, going back one step before we do the two step euthanasia, Mark, it would be um, emphasising one of the comments I said earlier on in this podcast in that we have this animal that's compromised. It it is not a happy guinea pig, and the quality of life is not there. Um, for whatever disease process or processes we have there. And they're the ones that I'd be saying to the client, okay, let's double the dose of the pain release. 
relief in this animal. Yes, we might we know we might be compromising the animal a little bit more, but what other options do we have? Our other option is euthanasia, and I I, I think it is not. It's not an act of desperation, Mark. It's an act of trying to provide quality for that animal. And we do get, or I do get some of these guinea pigs that then will respond to that treatment and they don't fall in a heap and they might live a relatively happy life for another few days, few weeks, or even if we're lucky, a few more months. So, you know, I, I, I think we're sometimes we, we think, that we shouldn't be given a particular medication because it may have contraindications, but we have to weigh that up against that quality of life with the animal, yes. But yes, and then we all, do get to the point. Well, I was just going to quickly highlight informed consent there, Brendan. I think yes. that's um, yes. that the, you're, you and I think exactly the same way in that matter, and I think um, uh, there are times where we do want to give um, those higher doses maybe... Um, a combination of drugs we'd be careful about in other circumstances. But as long as we let the clients know and they make an informed decision about it, we record that in our medical record, yes. um, then then I, 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 like you, have no trouble um, trying to maintain um, the maximal quality of life for the, the, the period that we have that animal. But when it does finish... You, what's your steps? What, how do you? So, the two step euthanasia for these unusual pets. Why? Because we want to make it exactly what euthanasia should be, which is gentle death, is one of the definitions of euthanasia. So, we sedate or anaesthetize the guinea pig first, and then we use the euthanasia solution usually to go directly intracardiate their mark. And we explain that process to the client, regardless of whether it's you know, a curbside consult with, with COVID clinic or not. Um, and there's two general ways that I'd be doing that with, with them. And they're both easy and it provides a gentle death for that guinea pig. One is we we give it a subcut injection or an IM injection, usually subcut of a of an anaesthetic or a sedative, and that may be a alfaxalone, it may be a, a, an opiate, it may be it may be metatomidine, it may be a combination of expired anaesthetic drugs. Um, and we explain to the client that we'll sedate your guinea pig. We hand the guinea pig back to the client. The client then sits with it in the consultation room or, or sits with it in the car if it's a curbside consult and and, and say, says goodbye to the guinea pig while it um, becomes unconscious um, or heavily sedated. They then pass the animal back to us and then I will gas it down um, the rest of the way till it's surgically um, anesthesia um, and then we go intracardiac um, and we do have clients that want to be there for the whole process um, and assuming it's not you know curbside consulting with COVID then we would gas it down and then invite the client into the um, surgery where the anaesthetic machine is they would see the animal is fully anaesthetized while we give the injection into the directly into the heart and they see that the animal doesn't react and it's amazing how many animals um, how many how many clients find this um, comforting um, the, the fact that, that we're providing a gentle death um, for their for their guinea pig um, because we don't want to just inject the guinea pig with the euthanasia solution because it is so so alkaline and it hurts um, so we want to provide a gentle death so that's my my process mark and I'm and I'm sure you do something similar almost precisely the same and one of the little tricks i've developed um is that even i think going through the explanation makes a huge difference if you tell people what you're going to do and then it it happens as you said it it definitely makes you look like you're in control and it authenticates your description of it being a peaceful death when they can see that there's no struggle there's no you know, distress. Um, but one of the tricks I've found is just to use my hands in such a way that, you know, we'll put the needle into the the heart and draw back to ensure we're in. Um, and I just always make sure my hands are in such a position that that flashback of blood is concealed from the uh, from the clients. They that it in the moment. It can be a distressing thing for them yes. to just recognise the blood coming from the heart. So 
often just, I don't know, it's, I don't like to think of it as a deception. I mean, I've told them exactly what I'm going to do, but they don't necessarily need to see the, the precise and colourful dynamics um, as they happen, I think. Yes, and we do exactly the same in that we walk the client or talk the client through that whole process before we commence that process. Um, and often we'll even um, have them decide because these are these long-term geriatric patients and they knew that time was coming and, and we may start introducing this subject well before that, that time um, about what they want to do with the with the, the body, whether they they want cremation or they want to take it home to bury it home um, and all the options there. Um, and even a fair number of them even want to sort of, you know, um, take do the prepayment first and have everything out of the way and, and sign the consent form for euthanasia, et cetera, before we start the process of the sedation with them. Um, and and typically we also, our routine is also now we ask if they want, if they don't want the body, then we often make little paw prints. Um, so we do the ink and the blotting paper and we make a couple of paw prints on a, on some blotting paper for them. And some of the clients even want a little lock of hair from the guinea pig clipped off. And we just put that in a little Ziploc bag as well. And it's amazing how many clients appreciate that as well as a little memento of their of their dear departed guinea pig mark. Um, those mementos and there's no, you know, just the 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 uh, way that people process their grief and um, and those mementos that allow them to uh, maintain a fond memory. They're important things for our veterinary practices to get right, Brendan. Absolutely. Well, I think we've talked ourselves to almost an hour or so, Mark. I, I think I said at the start we might be. Half an hour or so, but there we go. Crisp. I said we were crisp. We were crispy, maybe not crisp. And <laughs> I think we, with that, we will say huru from the gurus and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.